Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Architect Podcast, episode 113. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we talked to Zach Beyer about his work in Jamaican archaeology. Let's get to it. Our interview today is with Zach Beyer. He's the archaeology lecturer and lab director at the University of the West Indies, UWI, Mona in Kingston, Jamaica. His research focuses on the archaeology and heritage of the Caribbean at both prehistoric and historic sites and principally the diversity of human encounters in this emergent modern world. Zach's work in the lab and field relies on advanced tools, including scientific dating, 3D and geochemical analysis of artifacts and human burials, aerial drone surveys, and big data. He is currently involved in a number of projects spanning an extensive portion of Jamaica's history, including work at Kingston Harbor fortifications, and those date to around 655 to 1945. Uh, Also a former sugar plantation works yard, 1750 to 1910, uh, on the campus of the UWI Mona, and at one of the largest indigenous villages in Jamaica, the White Maro Tanayo settlement, and I'm probably saying that wrong. Tino, Tanayo, Tino, Tino. I think it's Tino uh, settlement, <laughs> dating from 8900 to 1600. His prior research, including his 2017 dissertation at Syracuse University, examined the diversity of military communities at a British colonial fort on the Caribbean island of Dominica, uh, and that dates from 1763 to 1854. Zach combined archaeological data with archival research to better configure the role of military labor in the development of African-Caribbean societies. His work in Dominica, which is featured in the volume of case studies of forts from around the British imperial world, uh, was something he co-edited in 2018, and that's called British Forts and Their Communities, Archaeological and Historical Perspectives. Um, That work exemplifies the applicability of theoretically informed and community-focused archaeologies at colonial military sites. All right, welcome to the show, Zach. Thank you, Paul, Chris, Wagwan, Archaeotech viewers, uh, listeners. <laughs> it's a it's a pleasure. No problem, no problem. So let's let's start with just how you got into archaeology. What got you interested in archaeology? I mean, are you of the uh, Indiana Jones age, or was it something else? <laughs> you know, I think my mom really saw it as that. Uh, I have a really I've really supportive parents, and I remember getting into archaeology. My mom's like, "Oh, now we need to get the hat. We need to get the whip. Uh, uh, no fire." No, no firearms allowed in this house, but uh, she was really into it. But it, it's also a story connected to my parents. Uh, they're, they're both uh, Americans, but British historians. I was raised over in England, so raised, you know, uh, around history with historians uh, and just developed this passion specifically for archaeology around what hard work, dirt and remarkable things and stories, I guess. Uh, uh, that that would be, yeah, that, that that's what brought me to brought me to the field. I, I should say maybe uh, uh, a bit as, a, as a, a rebellious child. I mean, my, my parents were incredibly supportive, but as historians, there's a certain way of what producing history or talking about the past. 
I think I think I came to the school of 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 rejecting of rejecting not necessarily what what my parents were talking about, but the tradition and among uh, 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 historians, I, I what I, I gravitated towards specifically anthropology, uh, and that mm-hmm. all happened for me at the at the undergraduate level. I had no no real inklings uh, 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 before before my undergraduate experience beyond rolling around Roman roads and other things like that um, uh, when I was when I was raised in England yep nice nice well that, that's quite the upbringing I gotta say um, you know getting to uh, getting to experience life like that so uh, so be having influences over there uh, and being raised in England what brought you to the Caribbean that's look uh, that's a great question I mean I'm now in Jamaica so former British uh, colony but mm-hmm. Like others, I think that go to the Caribbean. My first time was was on vacation. Uh, it was to Puerto Rico. Uh, you know, mainly sun, sand, beaches, some some natural uh, heritage sites, those types of things. But but through my time in Puerto Rico, got to know the Taino, or at least Taino sites. Mm-hmm. Visited a few of those there mm-hmm. around Ponce. Uh, uh, and and also began a, a little bit of research as an undergraduate, kind of toying around with early kind of what creative anthropological archaeology ideas, thinking about what signs that people are you know using businesses uh, for a variety of things. What what language are they actually written in? So almost like linguistic mm-hmm. material culture, and looking at the different patterns of when what in a bilingual island uh, imagined as a bilingual island when Spanish and when English is being used. So that was my. Look, that was my introduction. It started off on a vacation, and I just kind of stayed. I guess. Uh, <laughs> I think everybody wishes that would happen. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and you know, and this is how the, the the Caribbean writ large, I guess, is 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 imagined as a place as a place that you you vacay as a place what of of good music, good food, good beaches. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, but but following that initial introduction to Puerto Rico, I, I I I was at Illinois State University for undergraduate, so taking classes from Dr. Charles Orser, Dr. Elizabeth Scott, their definitions of you know uh, historical archaeology as an archaeology of the modern world, reading people's work like Kathy Deegan, uh, working on Spanish settlements in Hispaniola and a certain degree in Jamaica, that that really I mean that was like the homework that 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 got me down here and I, I then applied that to British forts first in Dominica and then by by 2012 I began my work in in, in Jamaica on forts around uh, Kingston Harbor undergraduate then led into just a just an incredibly valuable uh, albeit lonely depressing hard graduate school mm-hmm. experience at, at Syracuse University mm-hmm. where my introduction to that university was meeting a graduate student working in the Caribbean, uh, Steve Lenick, uh, Dr. Steve Lenick. Now, uh, I mean, he was advised by Dr. Douglas Armstrong, who's now my, uh, who was my dissertation advisor. And it was just a clear focus on, on the Caribbean, what's happening at the time of contact among uh, uh, Amerindian groups, uh, uh, mm-hmm. European groups, and then also uh, uh, the African diaspora. So uh, Syracuse was a great uh, training point to, you know, capitalize on initial vacation experiences, then to the experience of, of serious archaeology. 
And what in particular was it about uh, that initial uh, vacation experience that made you think that this was a good place for archaeology? It wasn't necessarily, I guess, when I first started going to the, the Amerindian sites, pre-Columbian sites, mm-hmm. uh, I, I needed to do more work and to better understand settlement patterns and life ways that weren't as apparent above ground. Historic archaeology, especially of forts, sometimes, you, you can't miss them. Uh, so I needed to, I needed to better understand you know uh, uh, the evidence as well as what is a, a distant time and often a, you know more distant culture than our own. So I needed to do a lot more work to get get back into there. I'll tell you, in Puerto Rico, I was walking around Old San Juan, walking through El Moro, which is one of the the oldest largest uh, uh, Spanish Spanish forts in the region. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've done archaeology there, but but more so, it's just a tremendously popular heritage site, not only for 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 visitors like me, but but locals. I just remember the kite flying, cell, uh, uh, activities going on, people just hanging out on 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 uh, uh, the cleared field on your way into the fort, having their picnic. So, and you know, I guess to finish up that is forts really stuck out to me. But more so the, the contemporary use of archaeological sites and, you know, the value of, yes, having the information about the past, but also the value in letting people explore, enjoy, create new new memories in these places. You're calling us from uh, Jamaica. And yeah. are, you, are you living there full time now and, yeah. and working and studying there? Wow. I, I've been I started the studying process when I was. Writing on my dissertation, I mentioned my colleague earlier, Dr. Stephen Lennick. He was the lecturer at, uh, at UE Mona. But we began a project at, at Fort Rocky. It's uh, uh, a fort in Kingston Harbor, 1880s, World War II. So a really interesting time period in terms of imagining what's going on in the Caribbean during mm-hmm. uh, the World War period, which is so often imagined as kind of an old world uh, European uh, uh, experience. So... I, that, that was my first introduction to doing work here, uh, 2012, 2013, and then and then took up the position as 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 lecturer in archaeology, uh, the director of our of our archaeology lab and curation facility on campus. So hmm. since 2014, full time. Nice. Well, this is this is the Archaeotech podcast. So let's talk about some of the uh, technological developments that have influenced your work and and some of the things you're using down there to uh, to push this research forward. Yeah, I uh, and again, I, I just appreciate the opportunity to talk about uh, uh, not only Jamaica, the Caribbean, but some exciting work that that has been going down, going mm-hmm. on down here recently. So, look to to begin with uh, during graduate school, historic archaeology, Syracuse University. One of the first introductions, and not necessarily hands on, but it was through the work of of Mark Hauser and some other folks using. Uh, thin section petrographic analysis, neutron activation analysis of of, of low fire coarse earthenwares. These are typically made in the Caribbean, either in by by indigenous Amerindian folks. But the context that we're talking about, 18th century, 19th century, you're largely dealing with enslaved African individuals making making these wares for a variety of different purposes, their own use, but also for trading. He did a fabulous study, the archaeology of black markets is the book where he, he showcased hmm. the scientific application of scientific methods for revealing just the networks and, you know, the levels of what freedom, consumer involvement, 
of of enslaved Africans during a period that 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 you wouldn't consider that happening. So that was a good introduction for me. Not necessarily something that that I followed up with my own work uh, at at British Forts, but a valuable look, a really valuable introduction. What we've been doing recently, though, in in Jamaica, I'm I'm involved with uh, a handful of projects, uh, uh, King's study of Kingston Harbor fortifications. So you've got a handful of forts there, dating between about 1650s all the way up to 1945. Right here on the UE Mona campus, we've got the the ruins of of two uh, former sugar plantations that that operate between about 1750 up to the beginning of the 1900s. And then, and then, and then, really, where te- and technology has been apparent in those projects, but really where it's been apparent at is is our our work at the White Marl Taino settlements, a very large pre-Columbian Amerindian settlement dating approximately 900 through about Spanish contact, so uh, wow. 1500s or so. Uh, and and at a site like this, that's a that's a well known site. It's been known about White Marl since mid nineteenth century, right around the kickoff of what's what I guess we could call scientific archaeology, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties. You had some work by uh, Robert Howard at the site. Unfortunately, he died in uh, nineteen sixty four before he was really able to dig in and 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 publish this. So since two thousand sixteen, uh, as a result of of infrastructural development highway expansion or proposed highway expansion, we've been back at, at, at White Marl using archaeology, using technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should say, though, for all those sites, a variety of them are located on, on sites that are significant to global, global history. Good. Yeah. But there are also sites that have been slated for infrastructural development. So all of this work in Jamaica, I mean, our motto here, our national motto is out of many, one, I'll tell you what. I am one of many, uh, uh, not, not, we need more, trust me, we need more archaeologists down here, but I've been one of many collaborators that have been, that have been digging in on, on these sites, uh, uh, including Leiden University, uh, including local uh, mm-hmm. uh, government agencies, Jamaica National Heritage Trust. So I've, I've got to, I've got to uh, definitely specify um, their involvement, because it's also been a huge impetus for the inclusion of more technology in the at these sites. I'll tell you, we deal with a digital divide down here in Jamaica, the Global South I'm period. Sure. Collaboration has been key, not only whether it's funding, but also bringing specialists down that we may lack, bringing technology down or sending samples out to to be able to to be analyzed by that by that technology. So, uh, yeah, it's been collaborative uh, use of technology out of those sites. Well, I was wondering, you know, when I look at Caribbean uh, archaeology, I don't even know where to start because it seems incredibly yeah. complicated with European colonialism, indigenous groups, African enslaved persons brought across. Um, it seems like yeah. you have a lot of different narratives that, that could be told. You've got a lot of different settlement types, a lot of different life ways. How yeah. do what kind of technologies do you use specifically that can help you untangle some of that? Yeah, look, uh, recently I'll tell you, say at White Marl, we've, mm-hmm. some of the, uh, the the really high level archaeological science uh, techniques that we've been using, including radiocarbon dating, a whole suite of new dates at a site that was last dated in you know the early 60s, have been vital to identifying, uh, to better understanding 
a site that is large, has many different mounds, that that has widely just been regarded according to a universal kind of calendar system, as well as treated that these populations that lived there went extinct relatively quickly, right? That mm-hmm. once Spanish colonization begins, within a generation, the majority of Taino uh, would have would have would have would have been extinct. And look, what what we're finding with radiocarbon dating is you've got you've got an extensive site that is occupied, you know, differently at different times. You've got dates coming from some of these burials that extend beyond the point of Spanish contact. So Spanish contact in Jamaica is 1494 on his on Columbus's second voyage. The Spanish first set up via uh, sorry. Uh, uh, Seville La Nueva on the north coast, uh, uh, early 1500s. By 1533, though, they've set up Villa de la Vega, our Spanish town now, right next to White Marl. We have a burial. So 1533, they set up that 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 new capital. We've got a burial that dates as old as as uh, I don't want to misquote this, but 1620, I think 1641, actually. Sorry. So that really, really throws that extinction narrative into question, which at this point is incredibly valuable, not only aligning with larger movements in the greater Antilles and internationally with the Taino Renaissance, but for creating a space in contemporary Jamaica for Jamaicans to identify as indigenous, Amerindian, as Taino. Uh, and, And look, advanced technology is just going to aid that case beyond radiocarbon dates even further. We're working on now uh, uh, bringing a project comparing uh, ancient DNA, samples of ancient DNA from some of these burial uh, contexts that we that that we've identified or that that have been uh, curated in collections in, in in Jamaica, testing the ancient DNA there and then comparing that to contemporary Jamaicans. So we can really really address that question of of extinction or continuity. I'm I'm one to think we're dealing with continuity. Uh, okay. so, so, you know, and there's other sides to that, what Taino story out of many one in Jamaica that includes these first, these first peoples, uh, uh, we've through collaboration, uh, uh, Leiden university, Corinne Hoffman, uh, she spearheaded a project out of that university and involved a number of universities called the Nexus 1492 project. And the, ba- a strong basis of that project is to do apply technology and do some serious archaeological science. And three of the burials that we identified in White Marl in, in 2016, this was recently published in the International Journal of Osteoarchaeology brief report in 2018. Uh, we did the radiocarbon dating, but we also did oxygen isotope analysis on, on bone collagen and then starch grain analysis uh, on teeth of, 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 of burials finding, you know, remarkable things. Mm-hmm. What, what, what these individuals, what a, what a nine to 14 year old girl who, uh, uh, passed away, uh, approximately between AD 1301, 1409, which was eating, which included the earliest evidence of, of cacao chocolate starches yet identified in the Caribbean. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, that, that come you you are what you eat right uh, it's on your teeth <laughs> it's also in your it's also in your 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 isotope your carbon and nitrogen strontium isotope uh, signatures and what we're finding with the burial evidence of white marls most of the burials uh, the three that we tested so far they, they they're pretty close to the standard uh, 
uh, uh, strontium range that you would expect mm-hmm. for these populations, largely eating C3 plants. But there was one burial that doesn't match up to that and likely indicating that just because you die at White Marl doesn't mean you were you were born here or lived your the yeah. majority of your yeah. life here. Perhaps you came from a different part of Jamaica or perhaps you came from a different island or region region entirely. I mean, the interaction networks between the Greater Antilles involving Jamaica, but also into Central America, South America, were were, were vital to these civilizations. So hmm. we're, we're, we're finding okay. out a lot using using again material science, archaeological science from from these from these burials out at White Marl to really reinforce this this yeah. this this story of of the first Jamaicans. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, cool. Well, on that note, let's uh, let's take our first break and we'll come back and really dive into some of the technology on the other side. Uh, back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. All right, welcome back to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 113. And we're talking with Zach Beyer about his work in Jamaica. And Zach, I just like your thoughts on something that really belongs on another show uh, and not the Archaeotech podcast, but you mentioned at the end of the last episode, you know, how we can tell where people were, um, uh, where people have lived based on their teeth and their, you know, the strontium isotopes and what's in there and, and, and where they've been and how, while they're not necessarily born or even died in one place, they could have lived somewhere else entirely. And you can tell that. And we often find that in areas like that, I think, because, our own, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like our own biases towards uh, this modern idea that we have of family and, you know, everybody wants to stick around home and, and stay yeah. there. But in, a, in an area with relatively abundant resources, you know, why would you do that? <laughs> why wouldn't you just move around? You know, so getting out of our own heads and saying, hey, these people explored their area, moved around and stayed mobile. Yeah, I, I think you're you're absolutely right. It's people that know the sea; they're using it as a as a highway. And there's also, and, and Bill Keegan's work on this topic, uh, there's also a variety of interesting kinship systems that, mm-hmm. uh, again, where you're born and who you marry could determine 
a different part of the island or a completely different island of where you actually stay. Uh, Keegan's work in the Bahamas has really, really narrowed down avunculocal uh, uh, residence patterns and how really? that is then is is then going to be materialized or perhaps reflected in 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 an archaeological record. If right, if we're actually doing anthropology, which uh, yeah. I'm one of those folks that that yeah, we're studying culture, we're studying humans, sure. um, we're studying their experience. So yeah, most certainly. Uh, uh, Population sizes in 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 the Caribbean they get quite large, but these are populations on the move, and and the evidence coming out at White Marl is showing you an extensive site, one that's continuously occupied for for almost almost a thousand years, but with with populations that are likely quite fluid and moving around mm-hmm. the island and, and 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 between other other places as well. Okay. Well, one of the ways you can see some of that, hopefully, uh, and we'll find out, is as you mentioned in your uh, in the bio that we read at the beginning of this, uh, you guys utilize some drone aerial surveys. And we have a mandate yes. on this podcast, don't we, Paul, to mention drones at least once every episode. Yep. Drink. <laughs> well, so can I, can I talk about drones right now? Uh, Absolutely, drones, man. Drones, if you don't, Chris uh, will. I feel I'm a, yeah. I feel I'm like in a confessional session right now. Drones changed my life. Let's let's be perfectly honest. Uh, That's awesome. I, uh, I and I want DJI Mavic Pro to, to to quote me on that and maybe cost us a little bit of support down here. Uh, I'll tell you when I began my dissertation research, Island of Dominica, uh, fort site, tremendous. I mean, large site. So the the aerial views. Uh, 3D models, uh, uh, just, uh, you know, amazing looks that I've been able to recently, with, within the last year and a half is when I first got into it, uh, flying yeah. drone in Jamaica, would have just drastically improved my my understanding of that site, and as well as just the presentation of it. I think drones for me has been uh, have been a way uh, that I, you know, sites like White Marl I've mentioned, campus archaeology sites, uh, 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 forts around Kingston Harbor. I hope I just don't lose it in the water there. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it, it's been incredible to get, you know, again, the, the kind of the macro view of these places, locate areas that, again, teamed up with historical maps. I'll tell you, we've been doing that recently with Kingston Harbor forts, uh, doing with, with permission, JNHT, Jamaica National Heritage Trust, Port Authority of Jamaica, Doing, uh, creating ortho mosaic images, uh, really detailed aerial views, along with 3D models of these areas for for study for research purposes. I mean, at one of these forts, we're now able to to pinpoint this very large, but only visible from the air, soldiers barracks. That that once this fort became a female prison in the 1950s, it would have been covered over with a variety of other things. So mm-hmm. we we've now identified that, and that is one of these areas that 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 we've pinpointed for, for further excavation. So, so drones have really opened up uh, that type of research precision, but I'll also tell you when I'm dealing with and collaborating with local developers or government agencies, being able to show them an image of an archeological site, a feature with development directly aligned with it or on the way to it, uh, really powerful. So I, I have to thank all those, those, those drone engineers, uh, uh, Mavic Pro, well, DJI, uh, <laughs> but also Drone Deploy. I, I use a lot of that. It's way mm-hmm. too expensive. Oh, that's good. Uh, the yeah. monthly, I'll tell you, we're, you know, uh, university lecturers and archaeology in the Caribbean, we're not making much. 
Uh, but I'll tell you, they've, they've designed just a fabulous platform to yeah. do this type of work. And I remember in undergraduate, my uh, God bless Charles Orser talking about flying uh, in, in hot air balloons to get good aerial videos oh, yeah. right? uh, and, and shots. I don't think we need that sounds fun. I would rather be on the ground, though, <laughs> flying my drone. Uh, uh, I'll tell you what. So it's, it's been phenomenal with the work that we've recently been doing over in over in Jamaica. Well, like you mentioned, you, you hope you don't lose your Mavic Pro in the water. But if you're in a hot air balloon, you might lose yourself in the water. So that's I'll take the Mavic Pro lost in the water anytime Look, I, out to sea in a hot air balloon. <laughs> <laughs> agreed. Agreed. And my wife, my family, they, 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 they strongly agree, too. I, I, I have queried again. Uh, and I, I, you know, queried solutions to, you know, beyond getting good, what insurance and a warranty that if you, you crash, mm-hmm. you got a year to uh, uh, return it. But you have to find the thing. Uh, oh, yeah. If, if either it's inundated in water or in deep bush, uh, I need I need another way of tracking these things. Uh, yeah. So I'm going to look to Archaeotech uh, uh, listeners and maybe you all to to figure out good solutions to find our, our, our drones when they get lost. No. There you go. Nice. Are, are there any restrictions on drone use from the government? We've talked to uh, other people yeah. using drones in other parts of the world, and sometimes there's uh, there's pretty heavy restrictions. So do you need a license to do this for academic or commercial work or like you do in the United States? Or, um, you know, what's what's the story down there? Yes, I, I think the, the official line, government of Jamaica, is, you know, flying around sensitive areas, obviously airports, uh, heavily mm-hmm. congested areas against the law. There's there are uh, 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 what kind of uh, I get permission from the agencies that are in charge of archaeology or that are controlling these properties. But there's also permitting for professional drone flyers. I'll tell you what. Uh, drone over here hasn't really reached the point of historic preservation and archaeology, but for what? For for parties, for music uh, events, <laughs> uh, there's drones everywhere, right? So, yeah. yes, they do have policies. They do have permitting processes over here dealing with drones, especially following, you know, internationally what we're hearing about what people flying drones next to airports and all this, all this kind of stuff. But, uh, but, you know, I, I, in, in the Caribbean, one of the many challenges is going to be actually implementing policy, right? right. Uh, to my knowledge in the sites that I've worked at close to what government properties or uh, other kind of protected areas there hasn't been jammers or trackers or, or that type of thing. I'm not concerned, but but mm-hmm. obviously uh, those things should be in place, uh, right. uh, especially on small island nations with heavily traveled uh, uh, what uh, plane corridors. Uh, they're all over. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I would think especially, too, if you're doing uh, forts, those are frequently next to uh, to uh, ports and uh, in a lot there you of go. ship traffic. And therefore, you might not be able to fly it directly over that if you have restrictions about flying directly over people as well. Yeah, and this is look, and this is why I underscore collaboration, whether it's Jamaica National Heritage Trust monitoring or managing mm-hmm. these places or the Jamaica Defense Force, which, like you just said, these would be the guys locate some of these forts have been. Uh, uh, transition into JDF properties, or but there are at least zones that they're that they're monitoring. So I don't. I, I'd rather not get in trouble with the Jamaica Defense Force. They're they're highly <laughs> trained and 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 mean. Uh, so <laughs> nice. 
Yeah, so Zach, um, also reading over your bio, one of the things that stuck out to me is you, uh, you know, we're switching gears here away from drones. Sorry for uh, all our listeners that come here for the exclusively <laughs> drone content. <laughs> but you, uh, you use the term big data. And I just wanted to highlight yeah. that because, you know, when we talk about big data in general, I, I'm usually a little skeptical as to uh, applications yeah. in archaeology. I think, you know, our data sets are too small and we tend to like very specific things, you know, very yeah. concrete measurements, very concrete relationships. The big data data tends not to be optimized for. So I was really yeah. curious to find out what you meant by that and how you're using it. Yeah. And again, this is my involvement with a database that's based out of Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, uh, mm -hmm. you know, World Heritage, well, Heritage site. I'm not sure of World Heritage. Anyway, uh, they do tremendous archaeology there on that plantation yeah. site and now developed a program, the Digital Archaeological Archaeology. Digital Archaeological Archive of Comparative Slavery. Uh, and so it's based out of labs there, but they've got a very multi-sided uh, United States, uh, Caribbean, and they may have even explored areas outside of that now, all based on, you know, the comparative study, archaeological, historical analysis of, of transatlantic slavery. I would argue that the study of that system requires individuals to to get their head around big data right and analyzing something as global and as something as penetrating as, as slavery from a single site uh from a single uh what artifact assemblage i think that could be troubling uh this was a, a system that changed in the same time across regions right so comparing different sites across those regions i think i think is 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 valuable and then ch comparing change change over time. So my, one of the reasons I really, I, I, I worked hard to get involved with those folks. And I just got to uh, bless up Dr. Uh, Fraser Nyman, Dr. Jillian Galley for, 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 uh, uh, for facilitating that involvement is, is the inclusion of military sites. Slavery is so often imagined as a very agro industrial enterprise. So the plantation becomes the main unit of analysis in historic archaeology of, of, of transatlantic slavery, when in reality these forts were built by, maintained by, later actually included uh, uh, enslaved African soldiers. So uh, I wanted to include that data set into the DAX database to contribute what is, like you said, relatively, I mean, we had about 15,000 artifacts, three to four different sites in that, in my database, but then comparing that to over 50 probably or more, and I don't want to misquote, misquote their reach at this point, but they've been working for well over well over a decade on the systematic integration of, of data sets from across from across, from sites across uh, uh, the transatlantic slavery, slavery kind yeah. of spectrum. Uh, so I would say that's almost a big I, I would say I would argue that is a big data enterprise. It's no, it's, no, it's the archaeology. Yeah, I, and I, I don't mean to you know, kind of, hey, uh, big data, archaeology, because I, I think it is, it's a buzzword, right? But, right. <laughs> but I, I think, I, I think if we, if we embrace that these big kind of impactful modern world processes takes all the data and collaboration that we can, that we can muster, uh, uh, mixed with computer science query based kind of uh, analyses, targeting patterns, uh, within sites and across sites, I think I think that's I think it's a good look. I think that's that's a good step in in in, in the world of archaeology. Hmm. Yeah. 
No, I think that that's uh, that's a really good answer because I hadn't considered that. I was only considering on the site or maybe the regional level, but not uh, mm-hmm. as a worldwide phenomenon like uh, like colonial slavery would be. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I, look, I I hope to take that same type of approach that Dax is. I mean, my idea is always not to view any of these forts or whatever the sites in isolation. So thinking about a similar approach to forts that's really embracing this this buzzword but this reality mm-hmm. of big of big data yeah and trying to make it make it work for people uh t- so oftentimes archaeologists we got we got really good data we're just not really good at communicating it and that's why we need drones and computer science and and digital and design and all the and podcasts that god bless you all uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right so we're nearing the end of this segment and the end of this show zach um I, I want to know, since this is a technology-focused show, what technologies have you guys tried down there? I mean, everything from you know tablets, computers in the humidity, whatever. What technologies have you tried that actually failed that you that you didn't end up using or you didn't get the results you expected? Well, I will say again, based on my current location, uh, Global South, uh, we're dealing with a digital divide. Uh, the idea mm-hmm. of having a funded program where there's a handful of maybe site directors uh, that have access to, to iPads. I can use my own book grant. I'll get an iPad. Uh, but we haven't reached that, that point yet, but this is, look, uh, this, this is, this is the goal. This is the goal. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you recently, and I wouldn't say it hasn't worked for us, but we're still working on it is we recovered a, a, at White Marl, this, this Taino uh, pre-Columbian settlement dating between around 8,900 to about, let's say, mm-hmm. 1,600, 1600 through Spanish contact, we recovered uh, uh, the Uimona team of archaeologists along with the Jamaican National Heritage Trust team of archaeologists, a, a pot burial. So it's a ceramic pot. These have been found before at White Marl, one other one, but it was during, I think it was in the 60s. But it's a it's a ceramic vessel with human remains on the inside, right? Without wow. excavating or you know essentially destroying this 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 really significant delicate uh, uh, feature, uh, we we tried to do a CT scan. So again, collaboration contacted UE, UE medical team. Uh, uh, Michael Gardner uh, was my point of contact over there, along with with specialists from the JNHT, and we took in this pot, ran it through the CT scan, uh, got the data, and we are, we're now working with bioarchaeology specialists over, over in Leiden, uh, Leiden University, Dr. Haley Mickelberg as well, included there. But it's been a bit fuzzy, I'll tell you what. Uh, uh, we're getting back <laughs> mixed readings. Uh, maybe this is mm-hmm. the CT scan technology that we have access to over here. It's very hard to separate the bits and pieces of soil, stone, other inclusions from what is likely at this point a pretty fragmented uh, 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 human human body, likely a, likely yeah. a baby. Uh, but we've there've also been pot burials found with with adult cranium inside. Uh, mm-hmm. So we still don't know what it is, and we still don't know if it'll necessarily work. But you, you know, you don't know if you don't try, right? And and right. these efforts with the use of technology means that 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 pot burial that was imagined as a forever place—it's a very what uh, significant spiritual uh, item. 
it now doesn't yeah. need to be dug through, destroyed, uh, 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 as, as long as we can. And we'll continue trying to use these non-invasive uh, uh, technologies uh, in archaeology. Yeah. So, okay. so it hasn't really worked yet, but I hope, I hope it does, and I hope we have, <laughs> have more to talk about. Yeah. Well, with stuff like that, it might just improve over time as well. You well, know, and you, you're right. I'm, the, yep. Yeah. So. Well, and I, right, I want well, to say there's a clear, and I'm, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt, but there is a clear divide yeah. with the use of CT scan, drones, um, microscopes in something like archaeology over, over, over in the Caribbean, over in Jamaica. I'll tell you what, I'm, a human, I'm in the humanities over here. Uh, that, that oftentimes sets you up more to be uh, uh, referred to a, in the same breath as poetry than in, than in hard science or serious laboratory science, right? So we're, mm-hmm. so we're dealing with a, a certain lack of connection that I hope my presence and, 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 and work over here will, will, will benefit. Uh, and, and look, and I'll just say beyond that, in terms of failures, uh, the Sokia Total Station, I think I, I forgot what, what, what series I have, uh, CX series, I think. I don't, I'm not trying to put them on blast, but that has been one of the hardest systems to, and I'm, I, I was familiar with total stations beforehand, but now, now I think I've, I've lost it entirely. So for your listeners, Sokia mm-hmm. CX series, that can, that, that's a hard one to get your mind around. And maybe there's a listener out there that can, that can really help me on the right track. But I've, I've struggled in the field when it's sweaty, it's raining, it's, it's miserable. I need a bit of help from Sokia. <laughs> yeah, indeed. All right. Well, that's about it. All we have for today. So um, we'll probably get some links from you about where people can learn more about some Jamaican archaeology yeah. and what you guys are doing down there. But uh, for now, Zach, thanks for coming on the show. Paul, yeah, thank you. Yeah, Paul, Chris, and your viewers, I really do appreciate the opportunity to talk about what technology, Jamaica, archaeology. All right. Perfect. Well, thanks a lot, Zach. And uh, we'll we'll hopefully have you back on again sometime when you uh, improve those CT scan results. Hey, there you go. And I'll, I'll have drone <laughs> stories. Hopefully I don't lose it. But, That's right. Uh, uh, much respect, right. guys. Much respect. Hey, thanks, thanks a lot. All right. Take care. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. All right. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 113, and this is the App of the Day segment. And on the last episode, uh, I reviewed the new announcements from Apple, and I've had a little time to play with some of those things. And one thing I want to highlight in particular that I think is actually really beneficial for everyone, but possibly even for archaeologists who are out monitoring or something where they're, in a, they're not in a forest or out in the open desert like they usually are, <laughs> where it's nice and quiet. Um, but it's the new decibel meter on the um, Apple Watch. 
Now you can download decibel meters for your phone all over the place, but the downside is you of course have to pull your phone out of your pocket or your backpack or wherever it's at, open up the decibel meter. And if you've got a case on it, you're probably affecting how the sound is coming into that microphone. And maybe it's not that accurate, uh, especially if you're holding on to it, you've got gloves, something like that. Well, I've got the watch series five, which is the, um, the minute I say series, all my Siri devices take off and go nuts. But uh, I've got the watch series five and I updated it to OS six and I updated the phone to iOS 13. And with that, I got the decibel meter on this watch. Now, it's really, really cool. Like we were at a I just turned all this on on Friday as before we're recording this and we're recording this on a Tuesday. And on Saturday, we were down at a wedding in Las Vegas. And when they were playing the music for the dancing later on, I turned on the decibel meter and it was pinging around 90 to 99, <laughs> which is like loud. super loud. <laughs> yeah. And it was giving me these warnings saying, you're in a dangerous noise environment. You better not stay there very long. And, uh, and I was like, Jesus, we never know these sorts of things, right? I mean, right. you know intuitively that it's loud, but do you really are you able to really quantify how much damage it's doing to your ears? And, and the nice thing about the decibel meter is they made a watch face for it where it puts the decibel meter on the bottom with his graphical format and then a, a few other things that you might want up there that you can kind of change. But it's a really neat watch face for that. Now, I really loved it. And if you've got the decibel meter on all the time with that watch face, it will just, you don't have to actively do anything. You just pull up your watch, look at it, and there it is. And then um, uh, if you are in a heavy noise environment, it will, it will tap your wrist and ping you and say, Hey, you're in a heavy noise environment because maybe you didn't realize it. Maybe you're drunk. I don't know. But maybe, <laughs> maybe. whatever happened. <laughs> At a wedding. Maybe. I know. <laughs> well, I mean, there you go. Um, a wedding in Vegas, no less. I can't even talk about it. So uh, <laughs> it's um, there, right? That's right. That's right. So anyway, it's uh, it was really cool because for those reasons. Now, one thing that you get with the new OS, uh, the new watch, as I mentioned, is a longer battery life, which I can tell, you know, you always get a longer battery life because they always increase battery technology year after year and they always increase efficiency of the software and the programs. So they actually use less power. So those things increase battery life. Well, by installing the new operating system and this new feature on a watch that doesn't have the increased hardware or uh, hardware acceleration or uh, battery life, my watch almost never dies, but it's died the last three days in a row by like eight o'clock at night. <laughs> so, and I haven't been doing anything crazy. And the only thing I can think of is I put this new operating system on and the only thing I can think of that's running in the background is the decibel meter. So I took the watch face off and it seems to be doing better now. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. I have my watch on since 530 and it's down to 72%. So that's about normal. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I really like the feature, um, but I would caution you about battery life, especially if you're not buying the new watch and you're installing watchOS 6 on an older watch, even mm. the Series 5 like I've got, which is just last year's watch. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a short one today, but... I really like the, f I didn't, I didn't actually even think I was going to get it. I was really surprised to see it on there because I thought it was going to be a feature they reserved for the newer watch because right. of the hardware and the, and the battery, but nope, I got it on mine and I'm not sure, you know, they have the ability to restrict this farther back. So if you've got like a series three or something like that, or a series four, I don't know if you'll get it or not. So it might not be a problem, but um, anyway, it's kind of a neat feature. So no run for a couple of days without it and see if uh, if your battery life goes back up and then report yeah. back to us so we know. Exactly. Exactly. That's what, exactly what I'm doing. So, all right. What do you got today, Paul? 
Well, um, just a couple of random notes. I uh, I don't have any new uh, new app that I've been playing with lately. I have one that I downloaded today. I might review it next time, but I haven't had the chance to work with it much. Uh, mm-hmm. I managed to forget my usual microphone uh, in the country, and so I'm speaking on a headset. <laughs> so if I sound different than normal, that's why. But um, not sure if I had the headset in the house. I downloaded uh, an app called Microphone, which lets me use my iPhone as a, a USB mic. So I'll play with that oh, yeah. a little bit and uh, and get back to you as to whether or not I find that useful. So the uh, aside from that, then the notes. I, I think it's hilarious that uh, Series Five sets off your series because your Siri, excuse <laughs> me. Uh, well, series because it's Siri on multiple things. Never mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because that was my one of my notes is that uh, I've started teaching a class here on uh, Wednesday evenings at uh, at Cooper Union uh, on the art and architecture of the ancient Near East, and so every time I say Assyrian, uh, yeah, Siri pops on and tries to do some lookup <laughs> right in the middle of class. It's really disruptive. Uh, I know that I can turn it off before class, but I don't think of it. You know, I, I do. You know, put my mm-hmm. phone on silent. I put my computer on. I, I turn uh, notifications off on my computer. I quit out of all my email clients and everything just so I don't have stuff popping up while I'm trying to teach. Uh, and yet Siri keeps on chiming in because I, in order to turn it off, the only way I've been able to find it, you have to go into settings, scroll down until you see Siri in search, and then turn off listen for Hey Siri. Which apparently, yeah. by the way, I say it sounds exactly like a Syrian. Um, <laughs> Or vice versa. Nice. Uh, I looked to see if there's a shortcut to do it. I looked to see if I could add it into the control center, and it doesn't seem like I can toggle Siri on and off easily. Uh, so it's just a few extra steps, a little um, a little more hassle than it needs to be. Uh, another thing I mentioned, Google News, uh, a few episodes back that I've been using. I continue to use it, and I continue to like it. I still have troubles with the um, with opening up things in Safari, and now with the new version of the iOS, it buried it just a little deeper when i go to to open something in ios i have to hit the share button and then push the panel up to see open in browser mm-hmm. um it took me a few times before i realized that because it there's no indication that there's more stuff down below the bottom edge of the um of the screen so you know why would i look there there wouldn't be it looked like the entire panel had popped up but the entire panel hadn't popped up so that's (laughs) been tripping me up i think that's a feature of ios not a feature of google news um because i Mm -hmm. think i've seen it in similar sort of uh pop-up plus more if you see if you grab that tab and push it up a bit uh that's just a heads up for anybody that seems to have lost options for sharing uh from whatever apps they're using uh the other thing about Google News, though, that I found a little kind of perplexing is that every now and then I get news articles that come through from BBC Gahuza. And mm. I don't know what Gahuza is because as far as I can tell, it's a probably East African language. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe not like a like a recognized language, but more like a pidgin language. And it's phonetic in uh, it's written phonetically with the ASCII alphabet. And I think BBC are the only ones that use it. So it's odd every time I, uh, I see a headline come up and, and it looks like gobbledygook to me. And then I look more closely, and I see the little BBC Gahuza badge. Uh, I haven't seen that actually for about a week now. But now I get the same thing basically with BBC Somali uh, transcript transliterated with uh, ASCII. So 
<laughs> at least nice. Somali I can deal with because of all the time I spent in Yemen. I kind of feel like there's some sort of cultural zone there around the Arabian Sea. Um, not that I speak a word of Somali, but uh, but at least that's interesting to me. At least that I can see why it might possibly yeah. based off of the, the kind of articles that I, I have in my feed, it would pull that up. But the BBC Gahusa thing just baffles me. So if anybody listening wow. to this can explain to me what that is, um, <laughs> all my Google searching turned up absolutely nothing other than, oh, yeah, this is BBC doing something for some people somewhere in Africa, which is wow. for me pretty useless. All right, then. Well, that's weird. <laughs> yeah, really yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah. Uh, every once in a while, I get uh, a website pull up thinking I'm somewhere totally wacky. And I'm wondering, you know, it's it's based on your URL and where, mm. not your URL, your... Um, yeah, your location services or yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the route to the uh, to the website right. as, it, as it detects it, whatever. I feel mm. like if, if you navigate to a website and you've been on a bunch of other websites and that website is pulling up in French or Italian or something like mm-hmm. that because it thinks you're there, that... You probably went through some other website that's doing some wacky things to you right now. Like right. It, it maybe downloaded some code and it's doing some interesting things. So I think it's time to clear your cookies in history. And, and <laughs> sending yeah. all your, your search traffic to somebody in Bulgaria. Right. Exactly. So anyway. All right. Well, I think that's it. Um, if you have any questions for Zach, our previous interview, uh, the first part of this episode, then please send them on over. You can comment on the Archaeology Podcast Network page for this show, arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech forward slash 113. Um, you can also send me an email, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com or both Paul and I's Twitter handles and everything is all on the website at that same link I just mentioned. Uh, also, if you have any guest recommendations, if you're working with somebody, if you are somebody that's doing some cool things, even if it's not Archaeotech related, we got lots of shows on the APN and we can find a home for you and a host for you and and get your information out to the world. Because like Zach said, archaeologists are really good at collecting data, but they're not very good at disseminating data. And one of the ways we can do that that is really easy for you to do is on a podcast. And we get thousands and thousands of hits from people around the world. And it's a really good way to get your research out there and, and really just inform the public and other archaeologists about what you're doing. So, all right. Well, I think that's all we've got this week. Paul, thanks for uh, coming on and, and inv- invoking everyone's series. And yeah, now they're all turning it off. I sure so. I hope I didn't. And I sure hope <laughs> I taught them how to turn it off for the uh, the duration of the episode or their lecture right. or whatever. Well, unlike uh, unlike Amazon, and I won't say the name um, because it will turn everything on if you say it. Mm. Uh, and I think they like that by design. So if you go into somebody's house, you can actually activate their device by saying the key phrase, right? But Apple actually got rid of that a few years ago on one of the operating system updates. It's now keyed to your voice. Ah. Your devices should be. And that's why I can say it and it doesn't invoke my wife's devices, but she can say it and it doesn't invoke my devices. And it's it's mostly good. If you have somebody with a similar tone of you, it, it could still set it off. But uh, I should be able to say, hey, Siri, and only have my watch and my phone. Yep, there they go. Um, <laughs> activate. And, and nobody else's. <laughs> I seem to remember that so. being a, a minor plot element in... Um Oh, maybe a Neil Stevenson, early one of his books, where he talks about running <laughs> through the library at the school and turning yes. everybody's computers on or off because they all had voice activation. At the time, it seemed kind of ridiculous, and now it seems kind of real. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, I'll just leave you with this then. We was uh, surfing the um, Apple TV last night on the trailers. We were looking at movie trailers and there's a movie coming out. I don't, it's coming out sometime in the next couple of months, but it's called Death. There's an app for that. Ooh. And apparently there's this app that everybody downloads, like it goes viral oh. and people are, people are, and it shows the exact second, like how many days, hours, minutes, seconds you have until you die. Uh-huh. It doesn't tell you how you're going to die. And then people are like joking around. They show in the interview of the trailer, people are like, oh, look, 57 years. Oh, look, you know, 46 years. And then this woman woman picks it up and she's like two days and three hours. <laughs> and she's like 25. <laughs> so Wait, why are we laughing at yeah. this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Apparently it turns into kind of like a final destination thing. Like if you try to thwart it, death will find you one way or the other. Nice. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> on that note. On that yeah. cheery note, <laughs> be sure to turn in next time. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. Uh, well, thanks a lot, Paul. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Chris. See you. Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.